Good morning. I'm reading from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Now, I was reliably informed by Simon when I was invited to preach that you stick to a very rigid 20 minutes. Now, I don't know whether that's Simon sort of setting, setting the kind of standard. But I was thinking, oh, oh my, that's, that's kind of double what I normally preach. So I have, I have tried hard and I am timing myself just so I can look Simon in the eye and say I did, I did my best. But I'm very grateful to be here. It's lovely for uh, Davina and myself to get such a nice welcome. It's also nice when you're invited somewhere to preach and given so much freedom. So rather than uh, in the Anglican church where I'd be you know, I'd have to look for the, for the weekly reading and stick, try and make something fit something around that. I was, I was told to choose what I wanted. So that's why we've gone with good old Doubting Thomas. And I, I went with this reading and actually with the hymn that follows it, I Cannot Tell. Because to me, they're both quite powerful statements that we don't hear very often about the positivity of doubt. I think we hear a lot, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe we're getting better in the church, but we can hear a lot about doubt being a terrible thing and, oh, if only you believe, more people would come to faith. That's what I was told, by the way, when, uh, when I was doing youth work. I started my journey of faith by doing full-time youth work in Hartlepool in the northeast, which was a tough place. Lovely people, but a tough place, a tough crowd to serve, and uh, we were part of a of the uh, Oasis Youth Network, which you'll be familiar with. Oasis running their own schools and everything. And we were kind of told, if you have enough faith, you know, throughout the year people will come and you will find the church growing. And of course, I just felt so miserable at the end of that year, thinking, oh, it's my lack of faith because no one comes to me and asks me questions. Well, at least they do ask me questions, but they perhaps didn't come back and join a congregation. So we can feel under a tremendous pressure to believe in that rather, dare I say it, a kind of old-fashioned masculine way. And I mean that in a negative way. It has been seen as a very masculine thing to be kind of very strong in the faith and not talk about your doubts. But I'm going to blitz that and talk about some of my uncertainties. I want to start with a painting, describing a painting you're probably very familiar with and that's the painting that describes illustrates this very reading of St Thomas 
by Caravaggio. So I'm sure you're all you know, living in London. You, you must be familiar with it. It's not on display in London, sadly, but it's a well-known um, example of Italian, I can't pronounce this, can I? Chiariascuro, which is set in like a tableau form. So if you imagine drama with characters holding a pose, it's a little bit like that. And the lighting is very intense around Jesus, who's on the left-hand side of the canvas, creating a fantastic sense of drama. And Jesus is there, as I said, in his resurrected self. Um, he hasn't got a halo, and they think that he hasn't got a halo just because he's not returned to the Father yet. It's pre-ascension, but he's there looking very solid and very real. And there's Thomas, who just the week before was describing his doubts. Probably very ordinary doubts. I should say, mixed perhaps with a tinge of jealousy. So how dare you return when I'm not there, knowing that I'm all doubtful and knowing how insecure I am. And Jesus is holding Thomas's hand, which is kind of, you know, pointing and pulling it into, you know, the wound in his side. Now it's a beautiful painting. And then you've got just behind Thomas, we think it's John the Evangelist, of course, whose gospel this is taken from, and probably St. Peter, and they're both peering like this, really sort of analyzing this finger and its journey to the hole in Jesus' side. Oh, there you go. I didn't even know that this was gonna be shown. Brilliant, brilliant. But I also think that John and Peter behind Thomas are also perhaps just holding the whole tension of the scene, perhaps about to, um, I don't know, really lay into Thomas for doubting or just wondering what on earth Jesus is doing in, uh, in allowing Thomas to do this. But of course, if you look at the reading again, which we will do, um, this didn't quite happen. There's no mention in our gospel reading that Thomas did any more than look from a distance. There's nothing to say he actually analyzed the wound looking for proof. He just instantly declares, um, my Lord and my God. So actually I'm describing this painting, but I'm describing it because I've got issues with it, with the accuracy. Do you know what it's known as? It's known as the incredulity of St. Thomas. And I don't like it, partly for that title, partly for the fact that it's not particularly accurate and that Thomas didn't actually need to extend his arm and explore that much. He just knew when he saw the Lord that it was he. And partly because of the negativity attached to the word incredulity. It's described as, in the dictionary, inability or unwillingness to believe. Now unwillingness doesn't just sound like a, a normal struggle of not being able to understand something. It sounds stubborn. It sounds negative. It's like I don't want to believe, which is what happens to my children a lot of the time when I tell them something important or wonderful is coming. I'll believe it when I see it. And we also uh, think of St. Thomas, not just as St. Thomas, 
not just as the person who um, appears in this story and others and who was close to Jesus, one of his disciples, but as doubting Thomas, which again seems to be the shame, I suppose, in this one story defining a whole person. I mean, how many of us have felt that one thing that's happened in our lives has kind of followed us around somehow? Something that we've had to battle from and redefine ourselves from. So let's go back to the text itself. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now how would that make you feel if you were part of this group that's had a really intense relationship around this leader, this leader who you thought was going to make everything right again and we think that they all kind of thought that Jesus version of success was kicking the Romans out but Jesus was trying to tell them all the time that he was building a different sort of kingdom so they're really confused when Jesus is crucified and Jesus allows it to happen so all this emotional intensity and he happens to be absent so he's going to be feeling oh why was I not with the gang at this time Look what's happened. They've all had this vision. Oh, they're either crackpots or they're trying to make me feel better or God's Jesus is punishing me because I did something wrong. Now, the very fact that we know Thomas by a different name, Didymus, the twin, makes me wonder, did he perhaps go back to his family home in that missing week? I do wonder what story Thomas could tell if we had evidence of that. We're just told that um, he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. I think he's just being quite brave and quite honest, really. And yet we seem to have been pointing a finger at him, just like the finger in that painting for hundreds of years, if not millennia, calling him Doubting Thomas as if he's to blame, as if he was a substandard disciple. But I would love to know what happened in that missing week. So we're told a week later his disciples were again in the house. Thomas, of course, makes very sure he's around this time. And although the doors are shut, Jesus comes and stood among, stands among them once more and says, peace be with you. Now what I love here is that the first thing that Jesus is concerned with, knowing that they're all anxious, and especially Thomas is anxious about exactly what to believe, is he's more interested in pronouncing peace. Calm down, things are going to be okay, don't be too anxious. He's not analysing them for a theologically correct response, which I think puts many of us, not just us with collars on, but congregations, puts us off from asking the big questions. This is something I found in my, uh, the parishes I worked in in the northeast. We try very hard to set up house groups, uh, especially around um, uh, Lent, we'd have Lent groups, but it was so hard getting them to talk because they had their questions they had very good questions and very good doubts which needed to be aired. 
But I think they were terrified of showing their neighbours that they had doubts. And it's great to see that the first thing Jesus is doing is putting people at ease. It's as if he's saying, there's no right response to me. There's no right response. You don't have to believe straight away. No pressure, just be yourself. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now, why does he use these words? Because they're almost the, exactly the same words that Thomas used. So I think in re responding with these words, he's trying to bring some kind of healing. And it's very similar to when Peter comes across Jesus post-resurrection and he's feeling terrible, of course, because he's denied favorite person in his life the most important person in his life the messiah the savior three times so three times peter asks do you love me just to begin to erase some of that embarrassment some of that shame that peter was feeling and jesus does the same with thomas he's saying i understand your doubts they're ordinary they're fine and if you wanted to you could put your finger here which there's no evidence that Thomas did. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now I'd like to think when Jesus was saying those words, he was not wagging that finger in the sort of infamous American preacher style of you must believe, you must be strong and believe. No, I think he's saying gently, do not doubt, but believe what you are seeing. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus replies, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I think there's a message for us there. We often look at characters, saints, disciples, apostles, who were kind of firmly written into church history in scripture and see them as almost godlike, just strong, and if not muscular, then spiritually muscular. But it's important for us to see their human side, their humanity, their doubts, how ordinary they were, but made extraordinary through knowing Jesus. And I think we, by and large, unless you're lucky enough to have seen I had a powerful vision, which, which I haven't really I had a direct vision. I've had friends who've seen angels, friends who'd had direct words of wisdom from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus, but I haven't. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet still have come to believe. And I think in that blessed, which we often interpret, not in a great way as happy, um, Jesus is just commending us for the work of faith, which isn't easy, is it? Isn't easy, especially through the last couple of years of COVID when we've all been thoroughly tested from everything, from being able to serve the community, being able to pay our volunteers and administrators, being able to turn up and worship together. All these things have really pushed us. And Jesus says, through these words, I understand how hard it is but still blessed are you in being able to see what it means to serve me, to be my hands and my feet, 
and my eyes and my ears in your community and for doing your best. He's not judging you. And then we're told at the end of the reading, something which is overlooked, I think, quite a lot of the time. Now Jesus did many of the signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But what is written is there so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So let us not just see this as some kind of empty epilogue at the end of the real story. John is affirming, reaffirming his use of the word sign, which he uses throughout John's gospel rather than miracle, which is used in the other gospels. The wonderful miracles which accompanied Jesus' earthly ministry were not purely events designed to tease or impress or to just there be there to get our attention, but signs of exactly who he was, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Therefore, his resurrection and subsequent appearances to his disciples are not purely events on which one's faith in Jesus hang. He's not appearing and saying to Thomas, Ta-da! What do you think, folks? Pretty clever, eh? I'm here. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you with me? Are you for me or against me? He says, instead, peace be with you. I understand your doubts and your fears and perhaps even your sense of shame that you were jealous of the faith of your compatriots when they were present and he, Thomas, was not. Now the other thing which Simon gave me freedom with this morning was choosing the next hymn which doesn't come for a few minutes but I thought it fitted perfectly with the theme of the glory of doubt and that's I cannot tell and now I like the hymn I cannot tell because how many hymns do you get that are not about that muscular faith but are about not quite knowing what's going on, how God works, where he is, what he is doing. In fact, it's a bit of a mix. But I know of no other hymns that begin with this sense of reality and humanity. So I'll read the first verse of I Cannot Tell, which I hope you all know, by the way, otherwise I'll be singing it very strongly on my own in a few minutes' time. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon us now or then or why a shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back they know not how or when now sometimes as a parent I've got a 13 year old and a 17 year old two teens both who are absolutely lovely but both who you know it's a bit like herding sheep um, I think, well, there's, there's sometimes when I'm frustrated with my children that I'm thinking almost shamefully, have I got enough, have I got enough love for them? Because my, when your patience runs out and you start to bark at them and then you instantly feel guilty, don't you? Instantly feel guilty when you lose your temper and think, oh, but they're my children. And yet they do need guidance and discipline 
And I need, all parents need patience, don't we? But we tend to sort of have that slight horror moment when we, leave, when we lose our temper. So I struggle sometimes to understand where my love and my patience for my children comes from. And I also look at Jesus a lot and think, where on earth did you get your patience from and your love from? With these silly disciples who actually had you there and still couldn't quite see your gospel message. Jesus' love and his patience, even though we sing about it and preach about it a lot, I still find mystifying. But then comes the second half of the verses, and they're all in this similar pattern, starting with the I cannot tell, I'm not quite sure. To me, I interpret that as, where are you exactly? But this I know, that he was born of Mary, when Bethlehem's manger was his only home, and that he lived at Nazareth and laboured, and so the saviour, saviour of the world is come. I love that mix and I think if we can emulate that mix in our own prayer lives, in our own congregational fellowship, then we'll have a wonderful strength with us, bonding us together. So I find that the more that we kind of have these open discussions about what we're not quite sure of, the more our neighbours, our friends in church go, actually, yeah, I'd quite like to ask that question too, but I'm almost feeling a bit bashful. We encourage each other to be honest, and we also help each other to find ways forward. Because we can't see things on our own. That's what the body of Christ is for, to help us to see things collectively when we're just blind about how to move on and get past a particular problem. So perhaps when we get to sing all four verses of this hymn in a few moments you can think about that mix and i think it's a very healthy mix of not knowing but then knowing exactly what you have to do next i know when i see my children i have to show a good example i'm the priest in the family and i know that they struggle they're both of that age where they're struggling with faith themselves my daughter tells me she's an atheist and I just have to be patient because she's been brought up in the church, she's been dragged to churches all her life and now I just have to leave it with God and let her kind of wrestle with it for herself. I'd like to leave you with one possible exercise at some point during the week before I finish. Think about writing your own verse that kind of completes this hymn for you, I cannot tell. And perhaps start with those words, I cannot tell. I am not sure. I can't see how I'm going to solve this problem. And we all have loads of things in our lives like that and that's completely normal. And then finish it with, but this I know, just like the verses in the hymn. You could start with simple things, but I know my church is there to support me. I know my friends are there when I need someone to talk to on the phone or in person. I think that could be a very healthy exercise, just reminding us how healthy it is to bring our whole selves to God. Not just the bits we're proud of, perhaps 
the worship side of things, which God receives gratefully, our worship, not just the financial side of things when the powers that be in a church or chapel are trying to encourage us to give a little bit more, but to bring what Thomas brought, that brutal honesty of not quite being sure where we are or where Jesus is in our lives. Amen. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together as a community, online or in person, to worship you. Thank you for comfort and think on how we can believe a better world and to be in. As many of our members travel for the summer holidays, we thank you for giving us the spirits of rest and we pray for those in our communities who rarely get the opportunity to rest. We pray for the numerous workers groups who are expressing their exhaustion this summer, as nurses, doctors, railway staff, teachers, barristers, amongst others, all contemplate industrial action to achieve better pay and working conditions. We also pay for the unpaid carers, parents, community workers, good neighbours and all those performing unpaid and unrecognised labour that our society cannot function without. Our rest, health, leisure and futures rely on their labour and we pray for a fair and just solution to their struggles that recognises the dignity of their work. We pray for those who have suffered from the extreme weather conditions over the past few weeks. From the extreme heat and wildfires to the flash flooding and false autumns that are devastating Britain's landscape. We pray that this most difficult summers will drive conviction and action on climate change and convince people of the necessity of climate justice. We pray for those suffering the effects of inflation and the cost of living crisis. We live in terrifying times. There are far too many people in this country for whom crisis, precarity and poverty have been made normal. And we pray against the selfishness that has allowed many of us to remain insensitive to the needs of our neighbours for far too many years. We pray that these times will not drive us to despair, but rather that God will grant us the spirits of action. Led by Jesus' example, we will join hands with those around us to support each other through these next few years and hold our leaders accountable. We ask God to use our doubt to comfort us. Even in times like these, as believers, Jesus grants us glimpses of what a godly society could look like. We pray that God will help us believe in the possibility of heaven and earth, that when we experience difficulty, we will not quietly retreat into the comforting maxims of modern capitalism, that individualism will, sa individualism will save us, that nothing can be done about the conditions we face, that no one, including God, can be trusted to protect us. Jesus lovingly holds his arms wide and welcomes, welcomes us with our doubts into his peace. And I pray that we will take him up on his offer. In Jesus' name. And so, may the God who formed the universe with all the intendant rules of physics, the God who created life with all the needs and balances we see, the God who inspired art and poetry and psalms and hymns and all the thoughts they contain and the opinions they generate. Bless us, keep us, guide us and protect us as we go out into the world. Amen.